This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Fresca, and welcome back to our podcast. I think a, a little note of caution for any of our younger listeners, if we have any younger <laughs> listeners out there, we're not sure. This one does get a little bit graphic, and it also does deal with some gruesome and some, I guess, sexual nature kind of things. Not that we're going to get specific into these things in any way, shape, or form, but I just wanted to kind of start off with just like a little disclaimer that... Um, a small disclaimer, yeah. A little bit of um, yes. true crime today, right? Yeah, and with history and history. History, and history. history. It ties in it ties in with a historical event, but well, true crime is still history, I guess. We're not really. Oh, yeah. This isn't really a true crime podcast. There's plenty of those out there. Just a little disclaimer that, like, if you ever watch SVU, so dun dun, and now we're ready to go. We did pick this topic, Tom, right? Because it does have a history or historical context to it, while it also deals with true crime as well. So what are we talking about yeah. today, Tommy? Well, it's basically someone, a man by the name of Gordon Cummins, which he basically took advantage of a historical event. He took advantage of the Blitz during World War II, of nightly bombing every night of London during um, early 1941, late 1942, during the Second World War. And he took advantage of this to basically become a serial killer, to go on a killing spree. Became different names like the Wartime Ripper, the Blackout Killer, the Blackout Ripper. Obviously, Ripper tying it with um, Jack the Ripper, the famous serial killer from London in the 1800s. He took advantage of the blackouts by basically attacking women under the cover of darkness or in bomb shelters, right? And a lot of times, some of the places where he assaulted women, he was kind of, I think he was kind of did it there too, hoping that it would get bombed out, find the remains and not think about it. You know, you think there's other things going on. He could just get away with what he wanted to do. This is really, really close to Jack the Ripper. Like once you start looking into it, this is happening during World War II. It is 1941, 1942, really. There's some 41 crimes that we're going to discuss that might have been him, but the real ones, this killing spree really is in 1942. But Jack the Ripper operated around London in 1888. So we're talking only 50-something odd years in between these two killing sprees. For all we know, Jack the Ripper might even still be alive when this is happening. I mean, because we never really or discovered who Jack the Ripper was. But let's start with the historical context uh, and kind of what drew us to this topic, right? Because I picked up this topic and you and I talked about this. And, and what really got me is just thinking of how scary blackouts are, period, uh, in a time of war, especially in London during the Blitz, where the Germans are systematically trying to destroy the city of London and kill as many people yeah. as they possibly well, so, can. You know, why were there blackouts? I mean, we can just go over that. Like, why were there right. actually blackouts? It was really just so that it would make it harder for them, for the Germans to bomb the city, right? Ideally, they wouldn't be... There wouldn't be lights on, so you had to stay darkness. People are hiding in the uh, in the bomb shelters. Right? Those signs that you see all the way now, be calm and carry on, right? Yep. That's, that's from the Blitz. Another thing here, too, is while these bombs are being dropped, it's not like you had a choice. You had to. No. Blackouts, blackouts were instituted really within days of, of World War II beginning in 1939. And you didn't have a choice. You had to ultimately blackout. And that means street lights. That means car lights. That means um, you Everything. had to put these... 
drapes over your windows. Yeah. It literally was completely pitch black in the city of London every single night. And this is truly scary in and of itself, right? Yeah, you, it's you know, true you, darkness, yeah. You add to this the fact that you have crazy rationing. There is not enough food. And people are being relocated daily. I mean, when these bombings happening in 1940, 41, literally buildings in people's homes are destroyed on a nearly everyday basis. So people have no homes. It's dark. They can't see. By the end of the first month, when the blackout was instituted in London, there was 1,130 road deaths attributed to blackouts. People just kept on hitting pedestrians. Yeah, because you couldn't, and, you couldn't see. And you're also got a potential of being bombed. Like you're just nuts. waiting there too for the for the bombs to stop being dropped and then wake up next morning, then assess the damage. So it's got to be the nerves. Everyone's nerves have to be high. And then think about this guy who takes advantage of that. And we'll get to it. He was in the RAF, so he's in the military. He's in the Air Force. Yeah. He's taking advantage of that to basically prey on these people who are already in a bad state of mind. He's making it even worse because the news of this gets out. It becomes big news. People are aware of it. The press tries to keep it on the wrap somewhat, but it gets out. And then it's yeah, just making naturally. people even more nervous. Naturally. We'll talk about it. the killing spree was not very long. Luckily. No, it was like a week. But one thing, too, before we get into the specifics of this killing spree to kind of stay in this blackout, uh, I want to mention something you just alluded to with how people felt just really miserable. In uh, 1941, doctors diagnosed a new condition among uh, specifically factory workers, right, on the home front in Britain. They called a blackout anemia. And it was kind of like just like seasonal affective disorders recognized today, right? They're being linked to like lack of natural light in winter. So people get more depressed and so on and so forth. That's basically what sort of happened to in blackouts during the second world war. You actually had people, this blackout anemia, you became more depressed. People were just lackluster and, and just, you know, sad overall and, and then add the fear to it. On top of all this, it was so unsafe to walk on the streets that you were actually encouraged by the government to hold a newspaper while you walked at night because then the whiteness of a paper might actually a little, have a little bit of contrast, a little, little bit of difference. Yeah. They started painting crosswalks white and white paint around the streets so people could see it a little better. It, but also on top of all of this, this is where you're really getting the context into this guy. Because of the blackout, you have a massive rise of crime, looting, theft, you also have a, a massive rise of prostitution, just vice overall. I mean, you're living in complete and utter darkness. So crime went up so much in London specifically. I think it went up by like 50% in the first six months. Police is not adequately equipped to deal with all this because well, no, there, so much could get away, well, get away with. You can get away with it too, but plus there's a war going on. I don't think that can be lost in this conversation, right? Like, not only is there a war going, this is World War II. Like, Britain in 41, 42, they're not in good shape. Like, let's be honest, yeah. right? Like, no. they're being bombed out. Like, the Nazi war machine is hasn't really been stopped yet. That doesn't happen for a while. America 42 is just, 41, 42 is just getting into the war. It's, it's not good. Like, I hate to say, I know we keep Here, on saying yeah. that, but it's just so people are going to be nervous. People are going to, you know, resort to crime because they're just, they don't have anything else. They just don't care. Why not? I'm just, so it's like, it's like the purge. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do because we could be dead tomorrow. So let's get into so. this new Jack the Ripper, you might say. You want to do a little bit of his um, background, right? We probably should. Background a little bit, just a little bit of stuff with him, I guess. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, he winds up being credited, and we think there might be more, but uh, with attacking seven women over, he didn't kill all the seven, but attacking seven women over a period of six days during February of 1942, when he was at the age of 27. Tom, you want to kind of get into a little bit of who is this guy, right? Who is yeah, Gordon so F. Cummings? So Gordon F. Cummings, he was born in um, New, New Earswick, North Yorkshire. 
1914, yeah. four children. He was the oldest out of all of his siblings. His father, he ran a school for delinquent youths. His mother was a simple housewife. And he actually received a, a private education. So he was actually like, he came from a stable family for every day that I saw, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times you hear about these serial killers. I know we talked about serial killers in a, another podcast a while ago. But if you've listened to those true crime podcasts, it was like Dahmer, you know, Bundy. Because a lot of them had like, you know, rough childhoods. He didn't really have that from everything that I saw um, as far as like bad upbringing. But what he did have is like a formal education, which was good at the time. But a lot of the teachers said he was always more preoccupied with socializing than like his studies. He winds up um, getting a diploma in chemistry at the age of 16. And then he winds up kind of just going to different jobs from there for the most part, right? So at 18, he moves to Newcastle. He worked as a chemist for a little bit, but left after five months. Basically, he could never really hold down jobs very long. Then he became a tanner, you know, dealing with like hides and stuff like that. But again, he doesn't keep that. He only's there for a little bit of time. And then he winds up moving in with his brother, I believe, right? Yep. Uh, into his brother's flat. But the whole time what they're saying is when people get to know him is that he keeps on putting himself out as an aristocrat, that he was like the illegitimate son of an aristocrat. Never really named anybody. That's what he said. He would like kind of embezzle money or borrow money from people, not pay it back. They kind of lived that type of lifestyle. You could also add to the fact he was a huge womanizer. Everywhere he went, everyone that recalled him later and looked at any different aspect from the age of 18 on, this guy was always trying to talk to women, always trying to lie to women, always try to present himself as something he really wasn't. Even faking an accent, right? He had this aristocratic accent. He would would fake his accents, fake like who his father was. Never named the father, just said who he was. Yeah, he would do other stuff. He basically had no respect for. Anybody, but especially women. Yep. Uh, and then you have him joining the um, Royal Air Force. He wants right? to join the Air Force, yes. Yep. He gets a, a decent amount. Of, it was like thousands of flight hours. Like he was becoming uh, on his way to become a, a fighter pilot. Uh, a fighter pilot. But even the Air Force kept on claiming that he had this like nobility. But he's actually married, right? He marries his uh, wife and only after seven months, he marries her. Yeah. And she stays with him the whole time, even during the trial. And yeah, stuff until like his that. death, and she stays. She away. maintains that he was innocent the whole time, too. And that's why some people, like you mentioned before we click record, some people still may believe that he was. However, as we'll get into it, I really don't think so. Well, the evidence kind of yeah, points to the contrary, which we'll get to. What winds up happening here is if you were in the Royal Air Force at the onset of World War II, especially after the Battle of Britain or during the Battle of Britain, which is happening about a year into the war, you were like a national hero. If you were an RAF pilot, Royal Air Force pilot, you wore your uniform at all times, kind of recognized within the community. And that kind of becomes his undoing as well, because when he is finally recognized here and there, they keep on saying, well, it was a pilot. It was an RAF pilot because he's always wearing his RAF uniform. And eventually we'll get into uh, some of the pieces that this uniform entails, which also will get him in trouble. But let's get into what happens here in February of 1942. And we know that he murdered at least four women. There are some other ones that are suspected in October 41. There's a couple women that are found murdered as well. That later on, as the investigation really goes into these murders, people are like, oh, maybe this might have been him as well. But before getting really into those or really getting into those, let's start with the the blackout murders, right? The first one is uh, it's Sunday, it is February yeah. 8th, right? 1942. Yeah. What happens here? Well, basically what's going on is he um, left an RAF establishment in St. John's Wood, right? He went to go visit his wife. They rented like a flat somewhere, I believe, in South yeah. Southwark. And he borrows some money for her, about 60 pounds today. And then he says, I'm going on a night in the town. And she's like, well, yeah, you go. Do what you got to do. So he left his home around 630. They believe is when he 
met up with a woman by name of Evelyn Margaret Hamilton, right? Is that what you're... Yeah, she was a pharmacist. And actually, pharmacist, this, is the, yeah. this is the one that out of all the women that he's killed, um, this is the one that probably has like the least shady background. Her body uh, winds up being found uh, the next morning. It is found in an air raid shelter, correct? Yeah, we found uh, an air raid shelter. Yeah, basically, and she was all, they could tell that she definitely put up a fight. But there was like scuff yeah. marks all over the place, broken pieces of wall that uh, they wind up actually finding some of that mortar in his uh, his, his bag. Like later on, like later on, yeah. So that's yeah. how they also. This is like a whole. This is like a CSI, you know, whole thing too. That like, this was in the early '40s, obviously. But like you said before, it's one of these cases when fingerprints and a lot of the CSI stuff really becomes like used in this case. Yeah, for the first yeah, time. Now, yeah, uh, very famous. Uh, Chief Superintendent Frederick Cheryl. People made fun of him. He was known as the fingerprint man. So the superintendent, Scott Lenyard Cheryl, was very much like you think of almost like Sherlock Holmes esque. All right, 1800s, but that's what he was in the 40s. He ever he would show up to the crime scene. He would have magnifying glass, they said, collected all the fingerprints when fingerprinting was so new at the time that they literally laughed at him like, oh, here comes the fingerprint man. But he was so meticulous with the scene. And even in this case, you realize that based on the fact that the, her soles of her shoes were scratched, she's like, all right, this woman was dragged. So therefore, she might not even yeah. have been killed in this air raid shelter. She might have been killed somewhere else and put here. That's how specific he was. You know, they looked at a body and some of it was exposed, like her breasts were exposed as well. But after examination of the body, they realized there was really no sexual, he didn't like sexually assault her or anything. Compared to what happens later. Yeah, so the, yeah, for whatever he reason, he, he strangled her and then he kind of just um, took some of her clothes off after that and then stole stole stuff. That's what he does too all these times. If they have any money, any like jewelry, any valuables, he takes all of that. She and, had, yeah, she she had just, 80 pounds, which actually in today's money, uh, that would be like 2,000 pounds. That's how worthwhile. Yeah. You know, that was a yeah, lot well, of money yeah. back then. And it was, it was right around her birthday too. She just turned 41 yeah. years old. And that's why she was in London. She was accepting a new job. And then she went to celebrate with a glass of wine and then they found that she was um, attacked, they believe, when she was walking back to her boarding house in the yeah. early hours of the, of the morning. And she had a whole bunch of cuts on her hands and stuff like that, which, again, says that she was probably fighting back for uh, quite some time. It takes a while for them to connect this one to the second one. Uh, the only thing that really connects it is the superintendent, Frederick Cheryl, winds up picking off a fingerprint off her neck. And the fingerprint he gets, it's an incomplete, fairly incomplete, but it's one finger. He gets the fingerprint. And based on the fingerprint on that neck, he realizes the person that strangled her was left-handed. And left the reason for yeah. that is because the fingerprint was much more pronounced on the on you know on the left side, or rather on her right, I guess, of her neck. So he's like, this is a left-handed person, and they kind of filed that, and that's done. That's the first murder. Fingerprinting, as I mentioned, it's fairly new. It's not necessarily a, a big thing. How eventually it becomes a huge thing, but not quite yet. All right, let's well, two get days into... later. Yeah, so this is the one that becomes um, a bit more intense. So it's this woman by the name of um, Evelyn Oatley. Um, she actually turned to prostitution during World War II and used the name uh, Nita Ward to supplement yeah. her income. She was also like a night a nightclub hostess. And um, eyewitnesses informed investigators that she was approached by a young, clean-shaven man with a mustache. Fits Cummings' you know, description, if you look at it. This is the last person that they saw with her. Her body was found on February 10th. Two meter readers actually discovered her body laying in her bed in her uh, flat. And she was uh, beaten with her mouth, like her chest. She was strangled to a consciousness. She had a six-inch cut 
inflicted into her throat all the way down to her carotid artery, severing her, car- her carotid artery. So she was beaten. Um, her abdomen was uh, and then, well, cut the open. can it was a whole can opener, yeah. like it was. That yeah, she was she, stabbed yeah. with numerous she was times. With, she, yeah, it, it was used a can opener on all parts of her body, and a lot of the razor, and there was also a um, razor blade that was also yeah. used on her. And a lot of these things were still, I don't want to get too graphic, but were still there when it wasn't. They were just laying there. They knew they were they were still embedded in her when yeah. they found her. And they, I think he also used a um, electric torch on her. Okay, so there was there was uh, definitely sexual. Um, connotation to some of the wounds that were inflicted upon her body. Kind of getting into this, you know, this is where he starts to target prostitutes, which kind of draws parallels to what happened with Jack the Ripper. Prostitution became very common in a war-torn city such as London, right, at the time. Specifically, like in this case, this woman was trying to become an actress. It wasn't working. And this was like a means for her to make some extra cash. And again, blackout, completely dark. And usually what women did is they would stand with flashlights, you know, the British people called torches, in the street and literally just shine the, the flashlight down on their feet. And it's pitch black, imagine that. So and that's if you saw a woman up, yeah. Sh- yeah, shine a flashlight on her feet, then you would know that that would be a woman that would be willing to whatever for however much money. In this case, I mean, it's sadistic, right? Mutilated body, blood everywhere, stabbed everywhere. But as you mentioned, most of the things, the tools of murder, I guess you might say, are actually left behind. And the one that becomes important here is this can opener, correct? Can opener, yeah. Yeah. Because again, that they find fingerprints on, right? One lone yep. fingerprint. They could also oh. tell that fingerprint, like what you were saying before, that that person was left-handed. So now the police are starting to see a pattern. So yep. two days ago before, there was someone with left-handed killed somebody, right? Left his fingerprints. Now it's all about, can we, you know, we all compare these fingerprints can we is it the same person yeah it goes back to the superintendent right scott and yard and he compares them he's like all right we got the same person that did this because at first they were like can't be the same person because the first one was not so sadistic right the first lady and this one was very very bloody very sadistic so very sadistic so so they're like "Mm." but then the, the actual fingerprint is what got them they're like this is the same person still the news are not really aware of this yet um, Not fully. However, keep it on the, the police yeah. is starting. Yeah, the, the police are aware of it. There's, from what I read too, a lot of the talk in that, like in those circles, like I guess the prostitution, that, that area, they started talking about it. They started becoming yep. more aware of it. Like there's got to be something going on. And then really the next day, the early hours of Wednesday, February 11th, that another prostitute by the name of Margaret Lowe was um, found murdered. And this one is also very um, gruesome, drastic, gruesome. Yeah. And yeah. So that, especially when it comes even more where. For two days, they didn't even know where she was. It wasn't until her 15-year-old daughter came to visit her because her daughter would come once a month to come and visit her when she was away at boarding school. That's what I read. Uh-huh. She's the one that found the body. Yep. Did you catch how messed up that is? This was a 43-year-old widow, right? Margaret yeah. Florence Lowe. Uh, she's nicknamed the lady. She was also a prostitute, but she was nicknamed the lady because she was kind of very refined and she dressed in very conservative clothing. She dressed as a 43-year-old woman. But the reason she became a prostitute, this widow, is because she wanted to pay for her daughter's boarding school. So like yeah. that was her means of like, all right, well, I'm going to do this. So that way I could pay for my daughter's school. And the daughter's aware of this. Apparently, daughter used to come in on weekends and they would go out and go to movie theaters and do other things as such. I find that a little intense. 
Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. As you mentioned, the daughter comes in. This forty-three-year-old uh, woman is found again mutilated. Her stomach's cut open. Her organs are out. Razor blade cuts all over the body. Again, there's sexual abuse involved in this one. And they also find on one of the things used. In this case, it was a candlestick. One of the things that was used to hurt her. You have another set of fingerprints. And to us today, it's like, well, why would you leave your fingerprints? We have to kind of put ourselves in 1940s. Yeah, it's it's newer, and plus, these people are psychopaths. I don't, that's kind of like the last thing they're thinking about. Yes, I agree, but I also saw that he went back, and on the first murder, when he dragged a woman into the air raid shelter, there was a lot of dust and dirt on the ground, so he knew he left prints. So he went back and actually cut off the back of his soles and his shoes that were in his locker at the RAF station. So he was kind of aware of it, but well, he wanted to destroy, extent- I guess, anything that could trace him, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But like when you look at and you think of fingerprints, it still just kind of wasn't, it was still too sci-fi for a lot of these people. And this one they knew, like as soon as this happened, how brutalized the body were too. forget about the yep. fingerprints. They knew it was the same person without a doubt. Uh, yep. That's what the cops said. It had to be the same person that killed Evelyn Oatley. Um, the forensic experts removed the fingerprints from one of the um, candlestick holders. Yeah. Right. They were able to put that. And also, it was a glass tumbler. So there was a lot more stuff that they were able to find fingerprints on uh, this this time around. And they again, the, they they found that the person was left-handed. So they're like, this got to be the same guy. And they're hearing the same thing as oh, we saw her. Last person they saw her with was a um, an RAF, a pilot, or something yep. like that. So this this is just right now. They're trying to find the guy. Now they they need some more eyewitnesses to really describe what this guy is basically um, looking like. That's what they need to really do. Yep. And then you have the Paddington murder, right? Well, there was another one in between this, wasn't there? Was there? Well, not a murder, but this kind of gets some of the thing. There was um, on th- on Thursday the twelfth. He um, oh, was the assault. Prize. Yeah, like uh, Ka- Catherine Mulcaney. Uh, uh, Mulcaney. Mulcaney. And basically, she was uh, known as Kathleen King. That was like a lot of these prostitutes all had different names. I guess uh, aliases. Were, yeah, aliases they use on the streets. She actually traveled with a, a taxi and him and agreed. To you know, engage take in him to her. Activ- I think to take him activities. to her activities, yeah, activities, yeah. So they're in there, and then what happened is she leaves her boots on and removes other things, and then he started like acting all weird. Came over and like slammed his knees into her stomach and tried to strangle her right there, but right because she spot, still yeah. had still had her boots on, she was able to break free. She kicked just, like, him apparently, kicked, kicked, him, kicked him really right hard. Now, yeah. yeah, he ran away, ran into um, a neighbor's house, and then he basically was like, "Oh man, he I know you're this. He follows her. He bangs on the door, and then he starts to um, push money under the door. He's like, he "I'm says, sorry, I'm sorry. Here's money. Here's more." Yeah, money. He says, "Yeah, he's like, I'm sorry. I think I had too much to drink this evening," and just keeps on giving um, more money. But then he, because of this, he didn't realize he left some of his RAF stuff, particularly like webbing from his belt at her address. Yep. She gives that over to the police, and that's going to be the beginning of how they can start tracing stuff. Yep. So, but and she said, you know, she, I think she winds up telling people like the neighbors, but that this guy was, was going to kill me. He's a psychopath. Yep. You know. 
And that's also around the time when you start getting some of the news in the newspaper, specifically now with this next murder. This was after this, it's fair game. Newspapers are out. Everyone kind of knows. And that's the Doris uh, murder, right? Yes. So Doris, also known as Olga, 32-year-old, in this case, a prostitute as well. She was married to actually one of her former clients. One of her former clients, yeah. He worked worked at a hotel. So every night he was gone, right? Well, certain nights she gave up being a prostitute and slept on the night's when he worked. So when he had certain nights, he had, he had to sleep at the hotel. That was part of his job. He had to like sleep mm-hmm. there. So then she would, on those nights, she would engage in prostitution to make extra money. I know they don't know if the husband was still aware that's what she was doing, but she said she had to go to one of her regular clients who was a name, who the name was the captain. So again, this goes with how people are always mocking Cummings and stuff like that. She actually went back to her house or her flat, which she shared with her husband, went into the room. And um, what happened was she, she, he winds up killing her in there, obviously. And yeah. then it's the husband. He can't get into the room because it's like padlocked shut from the inside. Yeah. So then he calls the cops. The cops go in and they're like, um, you do not want to go in. I recommend you don't go in there. Yeah. Because yeah. when they go in, she was um, her stockings were around her neck. And she was brutally cut. Same thing. Um, abdomen, yeah, all over. Knife, out. razor blades, yeah, you name razor it. Razor blades. All the, a lot of the stuff still still there. Parts of her um, yeah. flesh were carved away. He used to he mutilated her, particularly in her legs and stuff like that. So it was yeah. it was brutal. And he also stole gold, a gold watch, and money from the flat. So he he's doing that too because this is going to help him, you know, with that lifestyle that he wants to lead. And this is this is where press coverage comes into play. So initially, you have when I say rationing in World War II, this isn't just on canned goods or milk, right? Rationing was also on paper. So yeah. there was a lot of restrictions. Um, of what you could or should or waste newsprint space on. And in this case, for a while, this wasn't really mentioned. But after this one, uh, the murders committed by Cummins, which we don't really know it's Cummins doing them yet. Now, boom, this just hits the papers. Now you have these four bodies that are, are discovered. And the press calls him the blackout killer. Also, some other newspapers wind up calling him the blackout ripper because it always happens at night. And as I mentioned, the crime in, in London skyrocketed by 50% just within months of the institution of blackout. So it, it's just a police can't handle it. You know, imagine just complete and pitch darkness. A lot of people could get away with a lot of terrible things. And that's when he starts to slip, right? This is his big slip up here. Yeah, he's obviously unhinged. He can't control himself. So now on the evening of February 13, 1942, he went after a um, a young woman by the name of Margaret Haywood. She was not a prostitute. She was not a prostitute. Yeah, not a prostitute. Um, she was married, mm-hmm. and she they they shared a drink together and a sandwich. Apparently, they walked in the direction of a certain market at night. He released, at night, so he started like grabbing her and stuff like that, attempting to persuade her. Try to offer her money at first. He got offered her money. He tried to get her to go into an air raid shelter with him, and she's like, "There's no air raid shelter around here, and even if there is one, I'm not going there with you." Yeah. And then he basically just like flipped out and grabbed her wrist. And then um, when she tried to walk away and started strangling her in this doorway until yeah. she was unconscious. And she said he kept on mob, mob saying the words, you won't, you won't, you won't over and yeah. over again. So obviously, you know, they, it's showing that mental yeah, this dude's not right. illness and stuff like that. Yeah, stuff like that. And the only reason that's something that he um, didn't wind up killing her was because in a young 18-year-old delivery boy was actually carrying bottles to a near captain's pub like a bar yep. come and see this and he runs off 
And when he does this, this is where it really gets him in trouble. He leaves his RAF issued gas mask and his haversack, which is kind of just basically like a think of like a, like a bag. It's like his yeah, like an Indiana Jones little satchel like, yeah, yeah. Bag, you, yeah. Then you carry his stuff, and he leaves that in the doorway. And then he runs over, you know, helps um, Haywood, you know, get up and stuff like that. And he says, "Let me help you to the hospital." And he actually grabs the um, the gas mask and the haversack. So the young, the eighteen-year-old delivery boy grabs those things. On their way to the hospital, they find a police policeman. They tell him what happens, and then they um, take him right to the police station to give witness statements before they take him back to the hospital. Um, so yeah, and this but the key here is is the is the the sack itself and the gas max. They have a service number. Yeah, they have, they, yeah, sir, yeah, yeah. And he knows this, so coming sees it. He's like, oh man! So he goes and actually steals another airman's haversack and, and yep. gas mask so that he can have some sort of like alibi. They have this number, so they can easily just call. You know, RAF, and they did. The they, they called the Air Force yeah. Police, actually. And they're like, who owns this gas mask? And that's when uh, they were turned on to this uh, this man, Cummins. But the thing is, they still don't know that Cummins is the guy that had killed the four women. As far as they know, Cummins is just the guy that happened to assault this you one to woman. Assault this woman, yeah. But anybody want to figure this out? Because, again, like you said, it's so much crime going on. And this is also giving the RAF a bad name. They're supposed to be the heroes. There's something that if yeah. some member of the RAF is doing this, it's given a bad name to all, all the others. So they do actually find him. They start to um, interrogate they him. Take him into, they take him to custody yeah. for the yeah. assault on this woman the assault, while the they assault. go and go and look uh, through his stuff. And that's when he gets in trouble further, right? Yeah, well, he's saying he doesn't remember. He was drinking. He doesn't remember. If he did, if he did do anything to her, he's saying, I'm sorry. Um, I'll pay. I'll give. I'll give her restitution and stuff like that. So he's trying to um, get out of it. He's saying, "Listen, no, I, those, someone else stole my gas mask, so they must be trying to get me in trouble. They're trying to frame me." But it's why they're doing this is that you know, wait a minute, there's other stuff, and he's. They notice that he's left-handed. They then they um, search the apartment and they find banknotes. Right. This was cool. Like this is really like CSI stuff, right? Yeah. For 1940s. The banknotes that he threw at the woman he tried to kill, the one prostitute that ran away with the boots on, and then he threw additional one-pound banknotes at her. She obviously kept the banknotes, and they were they were brand-new banknotes. So the police chief inspector wound up tracing his serial numbers on those banknotes, and they were able to figure out that these banknotes were issued to specifically Cummins on February 12th because the RAF was given their own allocation of money to pay to their to pilots. The soldiers, yeah. And soldiers, yeah. And so and they actually had the serial numbers of like who got what. That's how specific the RAF was. That woman survived. So they still don't really have him on the murder. No, they but, have but then they're able to assault. they're able to search his house. And that's where he gets, yeah, yeah. They find a white metal cigarette case with the initials LW on it which belonged to every Oakley yep. and even if they didn't inside was a picture of her of mother. Her. Yep, 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 yep. So like yep. and then there were traces of blood were also recovered from a shirt that was there. Um they also found a pen. Wasn't um, there a pen? They found a pen. There's a, there a pen that they found. They found a lot of that distinctive dust mixture that was in that certain air raid shelter where yep. Evelyn Hamilton's body was discovered. So all this together, like, all right, this is and then oh, you're left-handed. Oh, so the, it's all just coming together pretty quickly. And then when they uh, confirmed the fingerprints, which again, that goes for the trial, they finally pressed charges against him on February 16th. So again, he starts all this killing spree on like the 8th. And by the 16th, he is caught. So, yeah, but it, it, he does quick. have his, his days of, of terror without a doubt. They do a police lineup on him though. And Mulcahy, um, that's the one I was assaulted in a 
like they had a drink together and a sandwich and then she was assaulted the non-prostitute uh, girl um she could not positively identify him in a lineup she's like i think it's him or maybe this guy and by the fact that she said that it was like mm, that's not good enough the prostitute haywood with the boots on that like kind of hit him she had flat out the second they came out in the lineup she's like that's the guy that assaulted me but again this is a prostitute so some of that wasn't taken really seriously and and cummins is still continuing to protest his innocence which is when the inspector comes in it's like well we have this new technique we have these fingerprints that's what does him in but even then the jury has to be convinced i mean the the actual fingerprint guy i had to blow things up bring him in and be like look at this picture he was he was cross-examined a lot and there was like yeah no one has the same fingerprints that's kind of like a concept that people didn't fully understand but he did such a good job i mean the jury went into deliberation for only 35 minutes well, but did you hear what happened before that? Before the jury, the a prosecutor was like, this uh, chief inspector, very known in the city of London, was asked, are you willing to stake your own career that this is the man, right? These fingerprints are identical to, identical to the ones found on the scenes. And the guy's like, yes, I am. Absolutely, and, yeah. Yep. And after that, they go into deliberation and they're like, mm, yeah, this guy did it. Well, um, plus they said Cummings was very odd during the um, trial. Everything I read, like he was kind of just waving to his wife, who kept on saying he was innocent the whole time. And the end, talk yeah. ab- it just would talk about like nonchalant things with his lawyers, never about like the case for the most part. Just like, oh yeah, how's the weather? The weather, how the how's the, they're talking about like how the war's going and stuff. It's like it was very odd. And he did take the stand in his own defense, and he got like that's another apart. thing that was cocky, right? He's like, I'll defend myself. Yeah, and he was just saying he basically just said it, 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 everyone's trying to frame me. Yeah. That's what happened. I didn't do it. They're trying to frame me. Even when he's found guilty and the judge asked, you know, if you're being sentenced to death, you have anything to say. He just says just that I'm completely innocent. He is executed, right, in prison on by, by June hanging, 25th yes. by hanging. So news kind of talks about it. reports on his last minutes. He's given a glass of brandy to kind of calm him down. Then he's walked out to the scaffold, flanked by two wardens. He didn't offer any resistance whatsoever. But also while he's being executed, which lasted less than two minutes. It was conducted during a German air raid upon London. So they're like, this guy's yeah, they're yeah. about to kill him. And all of a sudden there is an air raid on London. Like there's bombs being dropped. And they're like, uh, do we prolong this? Do we like move this later? And they're like, no, do it now. So they basically kill him. He is the only convicted murderer in British criminal history known to have been executed during an air raid. Like there was bombs dropping on London and around them. And they're like, we're not postponing this. This guy's going down. Literally going down. Anyway, kind of crazy. Even more messed up is he's taking advantage of a situation. But yeah, I think we picked this topic because it has that historical context to it. I mean, we've done historical murders and mass murders, but I think I, I, I really found this one intriguing because of where, how, and in what light this was happening which is one of those things that it's happening during history's greatest conflict it's just adding more stress more anxiety to a population that's dealing with being bombed every night it's just you know how much more can people take you know yeah interestingly enough there really is not much out there about it i mean you have a few things not not as much as you would think not as much as you would think no movies really just document a couple documentaries they're not even full documentaries they're more like Episodes, episodes, yeah, documentaries, episodes series. of shows that talk about it, yeah, yeah. So I'm a few small books. Well, that's why we're putting it out there. We're putting it out there for people to that's go research, right. find a little bit more about, and that's what we do. 
That's what we do. Well, anyway, as always, thank you so much, guys, for listening. We really do appreciate it. You could find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. Please feel free to email us with any comments that you might have. Make sure you tell your friends about this podcast if you like it. Why not? And uh, make sure you also click that subscribe button and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and or Twitter. Thank you so much, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.